This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Is it still possible to become a rancher? That's the topic of our show today. The short answer is yes, and our guests on the show will prove that, but you'd better really love it because it sure is not easy. We have on the show Amy and Jeremiah from Square Mile Ranch. The couple recently bought a 370-acre ranch in Wallowa, Oregon, which is in the northeast part of the state. They're raising pastured and grass-fed livestock and poultry and selling directly to consumers. When I first contacted them about being on the show, they told me they'd actually be in my area, in the Boise area, in the coming weeks and asked if I wanted to meet up in person. It kind of surprised me at first because I live probably four hours away from them, but they're dropping off pork deliveries to a host's house. And when I got there, I wasn't quite prepared for what I was walking into because the host family, who was nice enough to host the drop-off for the pork, had actually kind of made a party out of it. I mean, there were wine and hors d'oeuvres, and people were laughing and talking, the kids were playing. And these adults who were really just there to pick up pork kind of were just taking a moment to get to know each other and almost talking kind of like old friends and made me realize that food in, in the right context is just a powerful tool for building real community. I met probably almost as many people that day uh, when I was just there for the pork drop-off as I did the whole 18 months previous to that that I'd lived in the Boise area. It was pretty eye-opening. Then a couple weeks ago, while people were starting to really get concerned about COVID-19 and were clearing grocery store shelves, including meat, I got an email from Amy telling me that Jeremiah would be coming through and asking if I wanted to buy enough pork to essentially fill my freezer. Uh, This couldn't have come, obviously, at a better time for me, and it truly reinforced the value of knowing and supporting as many local farmers as possible. In addition to these experiences, the other reason I wanted to share their story with you is uh, they provide an example of how difficult it is for passionate people who want to be in this industry to get into ranching today. Both of them are originally from California and have long careers of managing ranches for others. Jeremiah, most of his career was spent managing one large ranch in California. Amy has managed ranches throughout multiple states in the U.S. and even outside of the country. So they have a lot of experience. This isn't something that they have decided to get into on a whim. They continue to work extremely long hours and pay meticulous attention to business details. All for what they say is an effort not necessarily to make a bunch of money, but to slowly build equity in this ranch they love and to maintain this lifestyle that they care so deeply about and to make their mark on the food system. I'll drop you into the conversation here where Jeremiah talks about what ultimately led them to ranching in Northeast Oregon. We didn't really think that we wanted to be livestock owners and we didn't want to be landowners was kind of what we had thought. We wanted to make decisions on big landscapes. We wanted to be land managers of with livestock and we wanted to save the world that way. We wanted to come in and, and using really good grazing practices on large landscapes and taking care of other people's cattle. And we began to realize that we were working really, really hard. We were not making very much money 
So we got to the point where, well, actually we can maybe own animals and maybe we can own land. We can work really hard, not have a lot of money, but maybe we could start getting equity in our own, in our own ranch. And that's kind of where we've come today. We've found a place and we've closed on it and here we go. It's really exciting for us. It's a fixer up a ranch. A lot of people would have wanted to stray away from it. It's not your conventional square perfect place. It's got a lot of oddities and things that make it not work well in uh, more of a commodity based systems where it would be inefficient for operators to be in there, say, if they were cutting hay, there would be a lot of logistics on the property that make it sort of broken up and difficult. But this is a really good foundation. And I kind of felt like people buy a fixer upper home for their first one. We're buying a fixer upper ranch for our first one. And we feel really excited about the foundation or the canvas that we can start basing our pasture based system and, and raising lots of different animals and selling meat to customers. Because we are not in, we're raising, you know, at the moment, four types of grass fed proteins, you know, our customer base is a particular, it's not just one demographic, but they all share, they're all, they're all looking to make a direct connection to, to where they're sourcing their food from, Mm -hmm. and to know what their food is eating. You know, that customer base is pretty easy to find quite on, not to stereotype, but in California, it's pretty easy to find that. And of course, it's everywhere. But we had to really make the decision between the further we got away from that, the more sort of our practices and the model that we're trying to do becomes unusual. Like Jeremiah said, you know, when we first started out, big impact was what we really cared about. We wanted to see a management change on hundreds of thousands of acres. We thought if we're really going to have an impact on the food system, you know, we can't just be selling, you know, a hundred cows and a hundred pigs. We need to be we need to be selling thousands. We at least need to have some pie piece of the whole, you know, sort of food system agricultural product puzzle that is significant. Um, and so that was the sort of the route we went was working for bigger, more corporate type forms, farms that had ranches that had the same sort of values and philosophies, but but are, you know, their branded programs or they're aggregating their product, you know, their pooled producer sort of programs. And so, and then we were sort of a service provider for those places. We were raising meat and managing land for those people. And like Jeremiah said, we just, you know, got to the point where we're like, you know, it's it's that interesting point along your story when you realize, so we're in our late 30s now, where are we going to be when we're 50, 60, 70? And we never thought that buying land would even be possible for us. Well, uh, w- what made it possible? I mean, you both said you didn't think it was even a-, a possibility. You know, what changed? It didn't seem possible. And I don't really think it it was because the only reason we've been able to do it now. So we are doing the FSA, the Farm Service Agency Joint Financing Program. So they offer for beginning farmer ranchers specifically, which just really means that you haven't operated your own business for more than 10 years um, or you haven't inherited a ranch that they have several different programs to get you into either operating loans or farm ownership. The problem is that uh, that you need to have an actual viable livestock business, you need a lot of ground. And, and there's this huge disconnect between what the programs 
are, the actual amounts of money that they will give and what land costs <laughs> um, and to be able to have enough land to actually have a viable business. But they do have one program, which is the joint financing program, uh, which essentially if you can, they will finance up to a certain portion. And then if you can find either another generally lending institution or in our case, an individual that will finance the other portion like a seller carry, an owner seller carry, which is what we've done, that increased the overall amount that we were, number of acres of productive acres that we were able to purchase. So that was an absolute game changer for us. And I don't necessarily want to say that it was luck because we've been working towards this for so long, but it's not, you know, if there was another Amy and Jeremiah, which there are, are, you know, in the next county over or in Nebraska or wherever, you know, it's not like you can just put it out there like, hey, I'm looking for somebody to, you know, co-finance $600,000 for us or something. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's a piece that I also want to be really upfront about because, you know, in livestock production in particular, you do you need a lot of ground to actually be responsibly manning your place and not have 60 acres here, 100 acres here. Maybe you get an maybe you're lucky and you're the new kids on the block and you somehow compete your way into getting an allotment or a different lease, you know, you're if you're not from a place and are able to stay there, you know, if you're if you're first generation or your own land, your family's land is not available to you for whatever reason, you know, you have to go out there and then you're, I don't like the word competing, but you, you know, to try and actually get a land base, people say, oh, there's these programs or this is available or this is out there. But if you actually start talking to younger ranchers, you'll find that it it is an absolute roadblock that, you know, finding enough contiguous land, getting access to it, and then having the operating capital to be on it. You know, it's what all of our colleagues are, are facing. I mean, among other things, but that's, it's a pretty big one. So we, we met this person who would do this seller carry situation for the joint financing and the doors sort of seem to be opening. And so we've been walking through them as scary and crazy as purchasing land and trying to pay for it with the actual things that are being produced on it, which seems like that's what if people think about farmers and ranchers buying land. They're like, oh, yeah, they probably pay for it with what they're going to grow there. What you know, but it's that's not very common anymore. Yeah. That makes sense. Earlier, you mentioned your your ranch has kind of a, a fixer upper. <laughs> Paint us the picture, assuming it all goes as planned. Maybe the best way to frame it, because I know you're talking about inviting more and more and more complexity. But what's the output of the uh, of the uh, the system you have in mind? Meaning, uh, what what kind of volume of what type of products uh, will you be selling to kind of make all the complexity of the system work? So currently, right now, we're going to be raising grass fed beef pastured hogs, pastured chickens, and grass-fed lamb is, is what we're going to be selling this year. Really, I mean, when you ask that question, like, what is the capacity of, I don't really know what it is yet. I know that we're playing it very safe. It's what we can afford to do this first year. It's going to take a lot of remediation work before we kind of know what the full potential of the place really is. I think it's important to talk about when you think about people 
farmers, ranchers getting started up, trying, if they want to own their own business, whether it's on owned land or anywhere else, thinking about how many uh, spreadsheets need to be made. <laughs> so like endless, endless spreadsheets and business models, trying to work all those numbers out. Hmm. And so to, to pull it back around a little bit from where we started kind of working on, on larger operations, on bigger landscapes, thinking that really economies of scale are the only way, one, to, to financially make it, and two, to, to really make an impact. And been doing that for other people and a little bit ourselves, a few years for ourselves. And that it's not really, it's not really, there, there's so many broken parts of our food system that that is still, you know, a lot of those, those places are having huge investment dollars put into them and they're still trying to figure out that model. And so we started looking at never, when we first started out this really concentrated, complex model, we thought that we loved it and it seemed nice and it seemed happy and healthy and the the sort of postcard of like the old American farm, you know, and that seemed like, yeah, that's nice and all, but this is the real world. And also the people that were doing that, we loved them. They were our mentors. They were beautiful people. And in many ways we aspired we aspired to to live out our values in the way that they were, but they were also broken, exhausted. So, you know, that's kind of why we took this different route. Now we kind of have come back to this piece. And after having built so many budgets, you know, for, for other much, much larger companies back down to our little tiny budget for this place, you know, 370 acres with, we've got another maybe 300 acres of lease ground around us. And we'll probably, you know, pick up more leases if we think we need it. But, you know, we're talking, we're talking about if we can find the, if we can make the customer base model work, selling direct to consumer, which a lot of people have tried already, and we're going to try again, we actually don't need to raise that many animals. So if we could sell 100 brief direct, 150 pigs direct, 1000 chickens, 50 lambs, those are pretty tiny numbers. But if we could do that, we actually will not only be making our land payments and you know have some sort of replicable model that, that people could do with the financing levels that are out there and available, but maybe our kids would actually want to farm after us. Hmm. The distribution, and that goes back to sort of when we were talking before about the medium size ranch. And a lot of it comes back to sort of, you know, storage and distribution and how many middlemen or middlewomen are there. And so if we can cut that piece out, which we're going to try to do, then we can make those smaller numbers work. Yeah. Well, uh, for those not familiar with uh, the part of Eastern Oregon where you're located, it is remote. Uh, it is rural. And so you, I hear a lot of people in the direct-to-consumer conversation say, yeah, that's great for somebody who farms in the Bay Area, but not for me because I live in a rural area. Nobody in my community wants, you know, wants to buy direct to consumer. They would just eat their own if they <laughs> if they were in that situation. How do you find customers uh, being so remote? Yeah, and they're not wrong, but uh, we are also finding that. I mean, I know I sort of pinned it all on California before, but 
there really are as, as sort of cheesy and annoying as it sounds, there really are growing numbers of people everywhere who are looking to source their food differently. And so it's our job to find those people, connect with them, make them feel genuinely, they need to feel different after having, after buying this food, their food this way to keep doing it. You know, sure. If you live 10 hours from any city at all. Yeah, that's, that's, that's going to be too hard. I don't really see any way around that, or you grow your food in a certain way and you have to find, maybe you're able to have just a small amount of transactions that, you know, sell your product in, you know, a slightly more direct, maybe a branded program of, of some kind, but to, yeah, to sell direct, I mean, we're, so in the location that we're in, we're looking at building sort of a core group of households in each of our locations that sort of ring the ranch. So there is our local community. And of course, we would love to sell as much here, but there's only 7,000 people in the entire county. And most of them raise their own, their own animals. <laughs> so, you know, that's pretty, that's, you know, that's a very small piece of the pie. But then you go, you go out, we have Walla Walla. And so in Washington, because we're right in the very northeastern corner of Oregon. So you've got Walla Walla's two hours north of us, Spokane, four hours north, Sun Valley, Idaho, Boise, Idaho, Bend, and Portland. Portland being the furthest, well, Bend and Portland are both about six hours away. So uh, there's a certain amount of like, you know, as Jeremiah's like, you know, this is our first few years and we just, we just have to hustle and do it. So we'll drive to a delivery day and back, you know, one of those locations in one day. And I think one thing for us is we didn't think that it had value, like, like our personal values to us, but going there and meeting the customers, some people are like, oh, we don't care about that. But it actually like, you know, we get to sit down tell our story to them and like them ask us questions and you couldn't get a group of people that have come together that sometimes are so different but all have kind of came to this place to buy our product and then it's like it's interesting to take a bunch of people that would never talk to each other and now we're all having a conversation and talking with each other and it it really feels good to me to like I always talk about how lonely it is in the city. Like there's millions of people walking around and nobody wants to talk to each other. And it's like, we all speak the same language, but we're just like in our own world, we have our own way of connecting and, and it's never with the people around us and bringing food into families' lives and connecting with them really does make us feel good. I, I think it also has to do, you have to be really honest with yourself about like Jeremiah is saying, like, do you enjoy it? you know, as far as the direct marketing piece. I mean, for what for us, when we first started, like I said, we sort of poo-pooed that model because it seemed sort of small and cute and nice and all. But, you know, I think there's also a part of you when you're younger, you really want to be in the game and part of something big. And But now, especially, you know, having kids and really looking, I mean, we're all just like Jeremy said, we're looking for meaning in our lives, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, we're learning that we have to give we want to add these layers of beauty to our life. We, If we want to experience meaning, we have to give meaning to people too. And we actually were surprised. We thought that what we just wanted was to sell semi-truckloads of finished animals and get a paycheck. You know, we said that sentence to ourselves for years. 
and that you'd, you'd never find us at a farmer's market. You know, we just, we want to, we want to load up the trucks and then move on to the next project, but then going through it and doing it and finding that we actually are, you know, pretty, we're cheesers. We're pretty softies, right? Like we actually really did enjoy that. And it means this year we got Christmas cards from some of our customers and it felt really dang good. I don't know about Jeremiah, but for myself, you know, I think my ego was a little too big. Probably 10 years ago, I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be managing, managing thousands of animals on thousands of acres, but that's sort of changed. And it's also driven by the, the economic, the numbers on paper, that's, that's not, that model's not really working for anybody either right now. Right. It hasn't for a while. How do customers as far as six hours away find out about you? I don't know. It's like magic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Honestly. Social media has been, makes it really easy for us to be transparent with what we're doing. We're, we're so far away from all of our customers, but they can literally ask us any questions when they want and they can, and they can see us as we're sharing our story through Instagram and and Facebook. It works. One of the things that's interesting is looking at the engagement of the people that are following us. And a lot of folks get a lot of followers, but really low engagement. And we probably have like a third to a quarter of our like people engage in what we're doing, which is pretty high. And so we're all, I think that's, encouraging for us to think that, oh, wow, it's people are wanting to hear what we're saying and are feeling good about it. I don't know with honestly without, and while it pains me to say this, I don't know without social media and honestly, really just Instagram. Cause I, I sometimes can't even, you know, it's, I'm not going back to sort of like, what do you enjoy and trying to make sure you keep factoring that into your business for, you know, for longevity, for being able to do it year after year and not build up resentment. For me, like I can't even, Facebook is challenging. I find Instagram very easy. And honestly, most of it has, I I think it gives people, people are looking for a certain product. Some, like Jeremiah said, it really has been word of mouth. You know, I don't know if word of mouth is going to carry us to the numbers we need to you know, our target numbers for year one, two, and three. But so far it is. And the trajectory of one sale, you know, so our Boise group was really from from one one family who contacted us and said, would you ever consider delivering to Boise? And we thought, well, we've thought about it. You know, if you could get a few other families together and do it, then then sure. And so we sort of decided, okay, what's the minimum number to make What's the minimum number on trip one? Well, it was three pigs. And then slowly out from that, you know, it's like going to sort of back the organic analogy of the branching of a tree. So it's been very sort of beautiful to see you make one initial contact with somebody and you actually get them to commit and buy the product. And once that's done, our retention rate is super high. They're very enthusiastic. And then they branch out and bring three more. And obviously it goes on from there. So, so far that is honestly all that we have done, but we are, because we need to, you know, we have these, you know, sort of our target numbers that we want to sell this year and the next. So we've got phases of, of where we think the business, you know, needs to, 
needs to hit. And we will do some farmers markets, um, but again, with sort of the, not as it being a sales channel, but with the explicit intent of trying to make that connection. Because once we make that connection, it's been very positive and very, it seems to then generate its own, its own sort of sales force for us. Mm. But should also say that we, you know, we will hold on to a wholesale account for probably all of our species so that we have that outlet so that we know that we can raise a certain number of each species. And if we don't hit our target numbers on the direct to consumer sales, then we'll still be able to move that product at, you know, a higher than, you know, we're not just taking it to the, to the auction, right? We have a preset contract that is above, that is still going to give us, still pay us a decent amount for the type of, you know, pasture raised animal that we're raising. So that's, you know, those relationships are still critical to us as sort of a volume piece. Yeah. Uh, how close is your processor and are they prepared to grow with you, assuming that you, you continue to hit your numbers? They're five minutes away. Oh, wow. So was that a big yeah. selling point on that property? One of the things that I think is a big selling point is the property, but also for the con customer that's buying the product is it's not just us. It's the community here. That's really neat. It's like, well, yeah, it's, it's us. It's the guy that's coming and harvesting the animals it's the cut and wrap like all of that money is coming directly back to supporting this rural community and that's it feels good to me that it's not just us but it's supporting everybody in the community that's working with us and helping us along the way too and it's neat to know that it's not we you know we're not taking animals from our farm and and sending them five hours over here to be where they're going to be harvested and then they're going to be then sent five hours somewhere else. They're going to be cut and wrap. And then, you know what I mean? There's not a lot of moving of the product until it's coming to the people, to the end user of it, which really doesn't have a lot of, you know, for us, like it's great not having to have a lot of fuel tied up into that product, you know, and it feels good yeah. about that. Too. Well, so let's be clear our, for our share, our custom exempt, sales so our direct to consumer sales that processor and on farm abattoir so the the animals are killed on the farm and then just driven you know 5 minutes down the road to the facility here and then just a couple more minutes down the road is uh state the the chicken exemption for you can only you know you can slaughter the chickens there but they have to be sold within the state so there's a state exemption for for chickens and then those custom exempt sales they can be sold out of the state but it has to be through the custom exempt model where the customer is buying a share a quarter half whole animal so that is all very much within our community. And, and when you even look at the, the pigs, you know, the fact that they're born here, their supplemental grain is raised on the farm next door, then they're killed on the farm, and then they're processed all within, what, five square miles or something, you know, and then the only, the only fuel miles is the actual delivery to the customer. So that piece is, is really, really strong. But for us to have USDA sales, which we'll have to have to sell at farmer's markets and for a few of our restaurant customers, which we are, are doing a few sort of whole animal butchery 
sales to restaurants, those have to be USDA. And so for that, we'll have to travel to Boise or south of Portland. So four or six hours for a USDA kill. And that's, I think the US average to, to USDA slaughter is seven hours. Yeah. So that custom exempt piece is, is really big. I mean, that, that is the essence of our model. Right. Yeah, that seems to be the biggest barrier for others doing the same thing is the processing capability. You, you're working around the clock to get this operation going kind of off the ground, and you're, you're driving six hours to these drop-off points at times. In addition to that, are you all still uh, working outside of the ranch in order to kind of keep, uh, keep the cash flow going? Yeah, currently I, I got up at two o'clock this morning and drove a hay truck. Hmm. So <laughs> yeah, no, I long days, but I mean, it's fortunate that we have some off farm income right now in this process. It makes it work right now. We want to pay ourselves to do the work that we're doing. We're just not at that level right now where we don't need some supplemental income that's not coming from the business. It's fine. (laughs) It's hard. I'm a little tired right now, but uh, it's for our neighbor. It's the same guy that is growing our pig grain. You know, I'm helping him haul his hay. We're trusting each other. We're always giving each other more than the, you know, not trying to take from each other. You know, I'm helping him. He's helping us. It's kind of been a really fun relationship for us. And we're really fortunate that we have our neighbor in our life. He, he, he's allowed us to move our animals to where we're leasing ground to right now. We are working off farm, but it's also, we're just really grateful and fortunate that we, ha- we have the people in our lives that are allowing us to get started right now. In, in a lot of ways, the sort of farmer farms that have similar models to, to us, if you want to put it in the regenerative sphere or, you know, just grass fed or pasture raised, there is investment, there's private investment behind a lot of those brands and labels that people know of. We chose not to go that route and are going to try and stay on that track. But we are, you know, in a, in a very, very tiny way, subsidizing our startup time with, with you know, off-farm income, but still still trying to have that funnel back into, you know, what, what our place is going to look like in a handful of years. Sure. No, that, that makes sense. Uh, just take care of yourselves too. I can't imagine getting up at two this morning and then doing, I mean, you gotta, you gotta also take, take care of yourself too. We talk about this a lot, you know, and that's, that's the thing that's part of the allure of, of farming and ranching life too, because we, Yes, on paper we make very little money. Um, we people hear they, you know, even just your response right now of the hours, but we also our quality of life is so high. You know, I mean, we have incredible food to eat. We've, we're building these amazing relationships with our neighbors. We don't have to commute or go anywhere. We have all this very hands-on time with our daughter. We, we completely make our own schedule. I mean, all, you know, all the people, farmer people listening know that, but I mean, that's the energy, the energy sort of expense to somebody in a, in a non-farming setting may sound crazy, but it's almost just like a different way that you're 
your energy flow works a little bit, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's a a value to being able to be able to create your, some, some of your schedule you can't change. Of course, you know, Jeremiah has to have the hay delivered by a certain time, or you've got trucks or you've got deadlines or dates, or you've got an animal that needs something, but there is a huge amount of flexibility in this lifestyle. And that I think gives us, and, and just the sort of sheer beauty and satisfaction of what we're doing seems to apparently make up for the other parts. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, let, let's get some parting thoughts from you both. Just uh, anything we missed that, that's important for specifically for people who uh, feel compelled to live a lifestyle like you're living and cannot figure out how to make it work. They can't they can't leave the salaried position or they can't find a piece of property that you know might allow them to to acquire it over time for whatever reason. They can't fit, find a way to make it work. So any kind of parting thoughts you think would be of interest to those folks who, who want to see what it's really like? I think the first thing is you need to find somebody to work for <laughs> that's going to help pay for your education. I'm really grateful for the opportunities that I had prior to this. Without that, it would have been a really steep learning curve getting into this. It allows us to been where we've gone to where we're going. It It's not as scary or we're not going down a path without kind of knowing how, what to do. So I think finding a place to get experience and then that would kind of tell you if that's what you really want to do or not. Uh, I think without that, just to, all right, we're going to go buy land and go do it. It's going to be overwhelming unless you have, you can afford your mistakes <laughs> I definitely made a lot of mistakes on other people's dollars and learned a lot in that. And if I, if I had to just start from scratch, it would, it would be overwhelming for myself. Yeah. I think when Jeremiah and I finally got to, to this point, you know, we made the transition pretty slowly. You know, we had our, salaried ranch manager positions. I mean, as far as the industry is concerned, we we both had really good jobs. And I would say most people would have done everything possible to stay in those jobs. But there there was a piece missing for us and we and we knew that. And I think that's this, you know, sort of being our on our own and ownership piece. But we still made that transition slowly. We're, so we left our management with jobs, but we, we already had these relationships. You know, we had sales channel re- relationships in place. We were not acquiring any of the actual production. I mean, of course, some, because you're always learning. But the, the actual sort of how to farm and ranch, you know, and how to, you know, everything you need to know from farming to animal health, that those pieces, like Jeremiah said, quote unquote, we're on somebody else's dime. We were employees when we were doing all of that. And then once that, and that was, you know, like a decade, it wasn't like, it wasn't like an apprenticeship or, you know, I worked some, I worked here for a summer and I worked there for a summer. Um, You know, it was a pretty long time getting those pieces and then starting to step out, look at other people that, that are trying to do something similar to you what are the what are the sales channels they've tried what are the production methods what where do they fall on you know their their inputs their scale all of these different things we've seen a lot some of which 
has worked, a, a lot of which hasn't or is enough to get you by for a certain time until you adapt your business structure and change. And, you know, I think we saw a lot of that. And then this property came about, you know, then then there's that sort of level of, I don't know if it's synchronicity or, you know, then the sort of moment presented itself where the the financing actually looked achievable and there was a piece of land where we had gone through the sort of infatuation piece of other of other other ranches that you know I mean Jeremiah's been looking at properties online for years and years and then actually looking at this and already having run the numbers on a lot of other places as managers I can't imagine not having that piece and then just trying to brand, you know, go out and and buy a place and have your own farming or ranching business. And I think you got to be kind of young because it's going to take a long time to pay for it. (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, I I think it's, you can't be too old, I think, if you're going to, unless you have the money to, to do it. But yeah, we're, we're going to have to live a while. <laughs> and and I think seeking out people that you also feel are going to give you really uh, hard, honest truths about what it, what it looks like, what the lifestyle looks like, what the economics look like. Because if you're just reading about it, if you're just reading articles about people that are doing, you know, the type of thing that you think you want to be doing, you're in for a sorry surprise. So really spending that time and getting to know you know, some other farmer ranchers that are a little bit further down the line. I mean, I don't, because the the margins are so tight, you only have, you know, if you, if you aren't having funding coming from somewhere else, then there is only so much room for error. And then you have to couple that with what probably was the hardest piece for me, not so much Jeremiah, because he's an eternal optimist, but for me was to, to actually make a leap, you know, even though like, yes, we have, we have, budgets on paper that show that that this is doable but the reality of that we know is going to be something different and so a lot of this is uh sort of in the leap of faith and okay let's let's just let's just do this so there is that aspect that is still present and i was scared of that piece for a long time and now am ready because i only have so long to live good for you yeah (laughs) <laughs> you you kind of crushed my dreams a little bit because I did read Joel Joel Salatin's You Can Farm book and I was all I was all ready. I thought I was I thought I'd arrived. But uh no. Well, we're not all Joel Salatin, so <laughs> <laughs> but right. he can inspire you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you guys very much for taking the time. I really I love that. And I, I think we got a good sense of what is appealing about it, but also a good sense of the reality behind how how extremely hard it is. Thank you again to Amy and Jeremiah for being on the show. Go follow their incredible Instagram account at Square Mile Ranch on Instagram. That's Square Mile Ranch. Also, if you're within six-hour driving distance of Northeast Oregon, you really want to get in touch with them about buying some meat. I'm serious when I say it is the first pork chop that I've had that I would put right up there with a delicious ribeye. So good. Definitely will highly recommend the quality that they're putting out over there. Thanks as well to my friend Sarah Nolette for making the introduction to Amy and Jeremiah. She has a great podcast over at AgTech So What. If you haven't heard about that one already, go check that out. 
In fact, Sarah's business partner at Authentic and Tenacious Ventures, Matthew Pryor, will be on this show on an upcoming episode. I'm excited for that one. Thanks, as always, for your time and attention. I hope that these podcasts continue to be relevant and worth your while in these uncertain times. We'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Music